It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to A Fine Time for Healing. It's uh, Friday, the end of the week. Um, Gosh, these Fridays have come around really quick while we've all been suffering from this COVID COVID quarantine. It just seems like the Fridays just keep rolling around. But um, anyway, today we're going to talk about um, mental illness, which, you know, is a topic that I'm extremely interested in and immersed in. So, um, but serious mental illness is complex. And the mental health treatment system in the U.S. is fragmented, and families often feel like their child's future has been overlooked. Sometimes families need help navigating urgent or complex decisions for a loved one in need of mental health treatment. To quote today's special guest, Virgil Stucker, whether your family member is 20 or 62, we want to know what are their hopes and dreams for the future. Effective and compassionate treatment can help your family member learn how to manage their mental illness so that they can begin to build their future once again. We help families identify and access treatment options based on best fit for the person of concern. Virgil uses his 30 years of experience in the mental health field to help those in need access the best care possible, helping them plan for and achieve sustainable recovery for them or their family member. He wants you to know that you are not alone and that there is hope for recovery. Virgil Stucker is a mental health therapeutic consultant and the co-author of the book, A Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery, What You Need to Know from Day One. He's written this book with his daughter, Stephanie McMahon. He is a visionary, mission-focused, nonprofit leader with 30 years of experience focusing on the healing power of community, creativity, and philanthropy. He has served as executive director and president of seven not-for-profit organizations and founding board member of several others. He was also a turnaround agent for a healthcare system, a professor for master's students in philanthropy and is a consultant to other visionaries. I don't know. I said that word fine the first time around, but philanthropy. Um, So let me introduce you. We were having a little bit of trouble with Virgil's phone lines, lines, so let's just make sure we're okay. Hi, Virgil. Can you you hear me? I can hear you fine, Randy. Can you hear me okay? I hear you perfectly, perfectly good. I'm glad oh, we got that excellent. situated. Okay. Yeah. So you you say that um, the mental health treatment in the U.S. is fragmented. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess first of all, thank you for that very kind introduction. Really oh, you're so welcome. Your, your your words, and I already feel as though I'm in the presence of a kindred spirit. So thank you. <laughs> you are so. <laughs> Our 
our system of care and treatment for people with serious mental illness is fragmented. Let's think of that in two levels. First of all, I would say it's conceptually fragmented. You know, too frequently, you know, especially in Western culture, we look for the perfect pill that's going to, you know, take care of every symptom that we have, whether it's a mental health symptom or a physical health symptom. Um, mental health care and treatment often needs more than that. It needs more time, needs a systematic, integrated approach in order to optimize uh, treatment outcomes. But you know, too often now, mental health treatment means if it's most serious and the person is really having behaviors that they can't control safely, they may need a hospital. And often that's just about it. They're in the hospital an average of 7.2 days. And today, too frequently, they'll walk out of the hospital with a bottle of pills. Parents don't know what's going on because the HIPAA laws won't allow communication, at least smooth communication. And maybe they're supposed to see their doctor in another month or six weeks. And Randy, there just isn't too much beyond that when a whole sort of conceptual continuum is needed. We're too frequently offering that fragmentation. And secondly, at a practical level, you know, our mental health system is often pieces piecemeal that are not connected and, frankly, don't give much peace. Uh, they don't talk to one another. There are missing pieces in the potential continuum. Our public mental health system is often overwhelmed by the level of need that there is and also understaffed. And even our private and even our private nonprofit system is strained, especially today under the COVID challenges. So putting together a practical and conceptual system of care certainly has its challenges. But, you know, Randy, we keep up hope and we keep working for recovery because it is possible to knit it together. Well, that's really good to know. Uh, so there are... So generally what would happen, I guess, is you would start by seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist, and they might diagnose you, and, or you, and they may send you. So say you see a therapist, then you may go to a psychiatrist to get medication. That medication may not work. You know, it, it's just it's so many different things. Um, so people don't really know what to go and where to go, and I find um, that those who are suffering from the abuse that I treat, which is narcissistic abuse, they have gotten completely lost in the system. They have gotten no help, mm -hmm. and they don't know where to go. They do not know where to go because they're not getting the proper help. So uh, that's why this is really important to me. But you focus on um, family members being the um, putting together a plan for a loved one who is in need of mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. How common is that in the United States? Um, well, in a de facto sense, it's very common because no matter what the systematic approach has been, no matter what access to care there has been, it is almost always the case that the family is at the last stage there, the last one standing to try and help their family member who is still in need of care. You know, the long-term support that families provide often without guidance, as you're talking about, you know, is, is so, it, it's crucial to pay attention to that because right now, 
we have over 8 million families in this country who are doing their darndest to try and help a family member with serious mental illness, everything from you know schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, autism, and the significant serious personality disorders. You know, they are there when the system is not, when there's still guidance and support that is needed. So it's extremely common for families still to try and hold it all together, Randy. Uh, you say that over 392,000 individuals with serious mental illness reside in jail or prison, and over 110,000 are homeless on the streets. So um, this is, I guess, this is what happens to people when there is no family, right? Uh, it is what can happen. Uh, you know, if you think about serious mental illness, you know, it can lead to behaviors that are difficult to contain. The person may be overwhelmed. May They may behave in bizarre ways that even when they're not harmful to others may be perceived as odd and potentially harmful. So they may initially be picked up and contained in a hospital. And then after the hospital, if there's no family, no care system to receive them, literally hospitals daily are simply discharging people to the streets. So we have a huge number of people with serious mental illness who are homeless and a huge number who are imprisoned. And, you know, Randy, their crime may have been they stole a loaf of bread at the local convenience store. And or they may have been noticed by a caring police officer who saw them homeless and destitute and unable to care for themselves and in some cases, you know, the containment of the prison is better than perhaps dying homeless on the street where they may be, you know, temporarily in jail while hopefully the system is trying to figure out uh, some kind of approach that would work. Randy, it's just, it's crazy. It's sad. You know, as you know, in Western civilization, I think we're almost, we're often measured by how well we care for the most vulnerable amongst us. We are failing. I I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, so you talk about um, improving care for your loved ones, and uh, you have you ha- actually have a, a Mental Horizons podcast, right? Or you've done a I Mental do. Horizons podcast? Yeah, you have that. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Mental Horizons podcast. And okay. even though, you know, some of my language may sound a little bit dire and distressed, I have hope. I mean, I've spent a career trying to build hope both individually as well as organizationally. And our Mental Horizons podcast is something we've chosen to do because we want to shine light on the mental health leaders that exist, hoping that others who listen to these mental health leaders will say, maybe I could do that too. And then also these podcasts are offering solution-oriented thinking, optimism. You know, there's a lot of hand-wringing and pessimism as we look around at the mental health system. But my experience is that there are a lot of very important leaders trying to make it into a better system, better parts of the system. Um, There are 
good number of nonprofit organizations that are emerging, as well as new kinds of treatment and care. So we do focus on those in our podcast. Yeah, I was actually listening to um, a professional that works in the court systems, and I'm trying to find the information. But he basically said that um, clinical psychology is like a medical science that was provided in 1909, that the profession now is a charade. They have, have not upped the game. They have not changed anything. And so they're not really applicable to so many of the situations that are out here. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that was his opinion, that they're really antiquated. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, You say that um, an understanding of both acuity and complexity will help you decide what level and types of treatment will be most appropriate for your loved ones. So what do you mean by um, acuity and complexity? Well, uh, acuity is sort of the level of um, dysfunction or behaviors or internally speaking, you know, the sort of chaos the person's consciousness or mind may be experiencing. A high level of acuity, the highest level, is often when the person may be seen as being a danger to themselves or others. They're just, you know, their their consciousness is fragmented. They they don't know how to behave in a way that, you know, society can deal with. So that's a high level of acuity that often needs containment, uh, sometimes in the form of hospital care, physically containing them. Complexity, um, complexity has to do with sometimes not just the psychological challenge the person may be facing. Today we're seeing a lot more sort of complexity, you know, serious mental illness interwoven with developmental disabilities such as autism, also interwoven with physical health issues, you know, pain management issues, you know, gastrointestinal issues. You know, you talked before about, you know, the sort of state of mental health care. I think our medical care overall in this country is too often fragmented. We sort of look at the person and sort of divide them up into pieces, and we have a specialist for each piece. The best mental health care is one that integrates all of those pieces and does not just treat the symptoms that the person is experiencing, but reminds us all that these are whole human beings who need to have their dream identified and cultivated and in fact, once that's done, that energizes them and helps them move toward recovery rather than sinking into sort of a state of chronicity. So are you talking about um, the integrative psychiatry or the functional medicine doctors, um, you know, these specialists that look at a holistic point of view? Yes, and some of those are just lovely, amazing people. We did a podcast with Georgia Ede, who's an amazing integrative psychiatrist who brings nutritional psychiatry uh, into awareness. Um, You know, good nutrition is what also feeds a healthy brain. Uh, Just yesterday, I did a podcast that we'll be publishing next week with a psychiatrist, Rocco Marotta, who has been pioneering, actually, the use of oxytocin, uh, the so-called love hormone for people with psychosis. 
So I just it, it blows me away these creative, compassionate people who are helping to, you know, integrate care. Not only integrate it in a way to take care of the symptoms of the diagnoses, but also integrated by looking at the person as a whole person and helping to move them beyond someone who's looked simply at as being chronically ill and helping them achieve and sustain their highest level of functioning and fulfillment, which is what recovery is all about. Very true. Very true. Uh, so you were saying how fragmented our mental health care system is, and it just drives me crazy. I mean, I've been around, I've been on this earth long enough to remember when doctors diagnosed one doctor would diagnose. He knew how to look at the body and figure things out and didn't send you to this specialist and that specialist. It is so frustrating to be involved in the healthcare system. So I can't even imagine what being stuck in the mental health care system would be, you know, would be like for people. Like where do you turn? I mean, I see people on Dr. Mm-hmm. Phil all the time. They're they don't know what to do with their loved ones. It's it's always they're mm-hmm. always so many shows like that. So what are our options? And, and before we go into that, I just want to say when you, and I know that you know this, but when you talk about hospitalization, it conjures up one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, it, it conjures up like a nuthouse um, with Nurse Ratched, which actually there's a Nurse Ratched Netflix now. <laughs> I haven't yeah. watched it. But um, <laughs> but. So what are our options? And when you talk about hospitalization, um, what is that experience going to be like? Um, so you've got a couple of questions there. Um, yeah. In regards to hospitalization and what are the choices, and basically I, I would also like to say, you know, choices overall. You know, I've worked with a few thousand families and individuals over my career who have been hoping to identify and access the right choices for care. And as you pointed out early in our conversation here, uh, you know, we recently wrote a, a guide for families, a family guide to mental health recovery, which families can buy on Amazon. It, you know, we started out with a 300 page book and basically got an editor to help us bring it down to about a hundred page guide to help families who were in distress, have something that is accessible, helping to guide them to the right decision-making. So when it comes to hospital care, what I encourage families to look for would be a psychiatric hospital instead of a psych unit in a general hospital, number one. Uh, there are some very good psychiatric hospitals, and there there are quite a few around the country. And Yes, because of what insurance does to these hospitals, the hospital stays are shorter and shorter uh, in duration. So the average stay in a hospital today is 7.2 days, according to the CDC. Now, that's not a whole lot of time to deal with a complex mental illness. So hospitals, at best, can provide physical containment, and they provide medications. They cannot really provide any effective psychotherapy inside of seven days. And also at the beginning, you have someone called a discharge planner who's trying to put together some kind of plan for the next step beyond the hospital. 
the person who's in the hospital who's an adult also, you know, too frequently can keep the family out of the conversation, which is one of the greatest issues because the family's always there, almost always at the end of the hospital to help with whatever the discharge plan may be. Uh, but, you know, yes, choose the right hospital. Sometimes families who have experience with hospital can give you good information there are consultants, and I happen also to work as one after retiring from my last program that I started. There's a group called TherapeuticConsulting.org. It's Therapeutic Consulting Association. It's a network of consultants nationwide, very good people with high ethical standards that families can also turn to to seek advice on hospitalization. That is so good to know that um, you, you and others who do work similar to you or, you know, equivalent to you are out there to help us. Because, and I think it's really important that we talk about this because I don't think most people know that. They don't know that there's somebody that can put it all together for them. So mm-hmm. your book is very important, your book of Family Health and Mental Health Recovery. What you need to know from day one is so important, and working with someone like you is really essential. What I was thinking is how empathetic are family members with mental illness in general? Because I would think that it would it would be so hard for them and so annoying at times that they may dismiss it or they may get angry at it. They may not be supportive of it. So would you say it is more um, typical that a family is supportive or that a family is not? Well, first of all, what's typical is a family too frequently um, is in the dark. They don't even know how to support. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what decisions they can make. They don't know how to help. And again, that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book for families. Now, unfortunately, psychiatry and psychology, some people who were trained came out of an educational system that, you know, would look at the family as the source of the problem rather than a solution, a supportive network. And sure, some families have been not supportive. Some families have been abusive. Some families have been sources of trauma. Um, But my experience overall is that most of all, families are in the dark. It would like to be helpful, but the system too frequently keeps families out of the conversation, does not guide them. And that's why we wrote this book that is not designed in a way to have families take charge. Uh, The book is oriented toward having the person, the patient, the individual with a serious mental illness be in charge of their own recovery. The family members also are on the recovery team. Too frequently they're left out. They need to be on the team. Well, it certainly would be very, very helpful to have your family behind you. Um, In talking about your recovery plan, uh, do you ask two major questions to the person who is suffering from the illness. What are your symptoms and what is your diagnosis? And what is your dream? Why do you ask mm-hmm. people what their dream is? Oh, because- 
I mean, think about this. Even for those of us who may not have a serious mental illness, you know, our research, actually I was involved in about 10 years of research looking at qualitative data that we would collect as people would move into recovery. What do they say helps them recover? Three things. One is to feel as though they actually have a sense of belonging in the world again, that they have relationships because too often mental illness disengages people and disrupts relationships. Secondly, they say that they have a sense of meaning and purpose in the world. Now, we have a sense of purpose if we have some kind of dream for how we want our life to unfold, some kind of core goals and objectives that we're moving toward. We want to know that we matter. And then thirdly, they have a sense of resilience. Now, that's what you generally get through good psychiatry and psychology. You get medication in some cases that may increase your resilience. You get psychotherapy that may teach you skills about how to manage symptoms if they emerge again. But if we only focus on that first question, Randy, what is your diagnosis and symptoms, and we were to take care of all of those symptoms completely, you're still left with a person too frequently who doesn't know where they're going. So you need always to be asking, what is your dream? Even though you're someone with mental illness, that does not mean that you don't matter. You do matter. What you want to accomplish in life matters. Brandy, I know amazing people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, most severe disorders. And I know many of these people who are able to accomplish amazing things in their life despite that because they and the world around them did not forget that they could still have a dream and contribute to society. Yes. You know, and I read that in your book, and um, it's something I became aware of pretty recently because I had a guest on who was, who had been diagnosed Mm -hmm. as schizophrenic, um, and she's living a normal life, but she talks about her episodes um, and how we really need to change that image because people think that schizophrenics are the ones who are the homeless people who are walking around talking to themselves on the street. But mm-hmm. more people than we know are suffering from this disorder. What exactly would someone with schizophrenia experience besides hearing things? Well, you know, if you think about schizophrenia, most often I think of a consciousness that has lost an ability to sort of be self-organizing, you know, through various stressors, sometimes through biochemical things like, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that marijuana, especially for like the young adult male mind can can put such pressure on the brain and on the consciousness that it too can trigger psychosis so you know, imagine, you know, most of us can think clearly, sequentially, we keep our consciousness together, but because of, you know, chemicals like marijuana or other drugs or because of some kind of biochemical dysfunction in the brain that may disrupt someone's dopamine levels, which is somewhat connected perhaps, or, you know, there's some research that shows that, you know, significant stress, especially before the age of seven, can create a latency in the mind that, you know, causes it, especially under new stress. And often it's like, you know, the second year of college when there's really high stress, when uh, most often the first break will occur. 
when the break occurs, it's like you don't any longer at that moment have full control of your consciousness. So elements of your consciousness may present to you as a voice, as a hallucination. My goodness, that's frightening. Just imagine that, you know, suddenly your 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 thoughts are so disorganized that they come to you as a hallucination. Uh, that kind of experience is frightening, uh, can make you paranoid. That's often a symptom that's described as, as someone who with schizophrenia. Uh, so you're feeling out of control. And some of your behaviors may sort of reflect that internal sense of being out of control. And at that point, you know, you may end up having to go to the hospital to achieve a certain kind of containment. Some of the antipsychotic medications uh, can be helpful at that point. And the person who has schizophrenia, persistent thought disorder, can gain some insight can learn how to manage their voices. For example, there's groups called Hearing Voices Network. It's basically individuals who are voice hearers who are trained to work in group sessions to share with one another some of their experiences in ways that normalize those experiences and teach them how to manage some of this on their own without medications. Um, so it's a long answer to your short question. No, it's a it's a really good answer. As a matter of fact, it's a long answer, but it it was full of great information. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the word psychosis, and I think people throw that word around. They call people psychotic if they're, you know, I mean, I work with victims of personality disordered individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. personality disordered individuals are quite off the wall. They're quite, I don't want to use the word crazy, but the things that they do are bizarre. But they do it mm-hmm. with full awareness, full consciousness, full intention. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But people always say they're psychotic. So define for us what psychotic or psychosis means. What is it to be psychotic? So, um, first of all, in regards to your, you know, comments about people with personality disorder, you know, I do respect that personality disorders, you know, from narcissistic to dependent to borderline to avoidant personality disorders, those can be so significant, so disruptive. My experience is most often they can be helped through some of the intensive uses of psychotherapy. Now, when it comes to psychosis, I would generally not describe someone with a personality disorder as having psychosis. So going back to my definition a moment ago about the the person's consciousness or brain functions when they are psychotic, being disrupted, disordered, they're unable to sort of self-organize their thoughts, that essentially is what I know as psychosis. And it's a very good question, Randy, because today we're realizing we need to talk about a psychotic spectrum disorder rather than simply saying someone has, quote, schizophrenia. Because there is sort of a level of severity, and some people are, you know, not as psychotic as others. Some people become so psychotic that their, you know, their thought processes are permanently sort of disjointed, they need permanent use of medications, 
and may need even containment. Other people may have sort of transient psychotic experiences, sometimes a result of um, drug-induced psychosis. Um, you know, we've learned today to talk about autism spectrum disorders rather than what used to be called Asperger's, for example, because we realize that, you know, this is a disorder that exists across the spectrum. So, frankly, I've been moving more toward talking about psychotic spectrum disorders across the spectrum, and I tend more often not to use the term schizophrenia because that too frequently conjures up in the person's mind, you know, some kind of, you know, bizarre, crazy person, which is right. not generally the case. So, okay, so I like that. I, I think that's a much better way to um, label this, actually, because, you know, when you label somebody with a mental illness, they become that mental illness. It is very scary. You know, um, mm-hmm. you tell somebody that something is wrong, and that is, they live that, you know. So mm-hmm. I think that's a much better approach. And I also wanted to ask you, um, there is, there seems to be an overdiagnosis of bipolar out there. And uh, the mm-hmm. reason I say that, and I'm speaking from my own experience, is that um, victims of narcissistic abuse are very... Um, they're, they change, their emotions change, they're, they're very trauma- traumatized, and so they may come across as different at different times. So often they are diagnosed as bipolar and then put on you know, medication for that, which makes the problem worse, and the core issue is not identified. They're not bipolar, but they appear to have that. So have you noticed that there is an overdiagnosis of that particular um, mental illness? Certainly there are three things I'd like to address in your question. One is the number of people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Also the changeability of diagnoses. And thirdly, the rather sort of insufficient processes that are sometimes used in order to arrive at a diagnosis. So first to the bipolar disorder diagnoses. Some of the research shows that, in fact, we do have an increase in young people with bipolar disorder, in part because we have overused the stimulant medications for attention deficit disorder, which is, I think, too too frequently diagnosed, and almost always with medication in response, and there are you know, approaches such as neurofeedback for attention deficit disorder that can actually replace the need for medications for that for that disorder. But because we too frequently will use stimulants, and in particular Adderall, which has a lot of horrible side effects, including like rage reactions uh, for some people, I mean, this these stimulants, have been correlated with some of the increased diagnoses of bipolar disorder. So yes, in fact, we have an increased number of people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But let's look at the second thing. When and how are people diagnosed? You know, too frequently they're diagnosed with a very short time period. They may be in the office on the other side of the desk from a psychiatrist or a psychologist that they're seeing for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, you know, once a month. And inside of that 
time period the person is supposed to observe their symptoms and come up with an accurate diagnosis? doesn't always work, Randy. Sometimes it's a misdiagnosis. Sometimes, especially when it is complex, like with a personality disorder, there needs to be a much deeper, more refined approach, a process that's used to achieve a diagnosis. There's a half a dozen assessment centers, for example, around the country that I sometimes refer individuals to where the diagnostic process takes a minimum of two weeks in order to really achieve the, the right diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, not long ago, I helped to refer someone to one of these centers. They had been laboring for 20 years, Randy, under the diagnosis of bipolar disorder with the medications not being helpful and just getting worse. And they ended up going to an assessment center and they were reassessed as someone who has an anxiety disorder of a type that really needed psychotherapy, not medication. So they were misdiagnosed for 20 years. So, uh, and then thirdly, yeah. diagnoses do change. You know, if you think about a cancer diagnosis, there's a disease entity, there's a tumor often. But if you think about mental illness, you know, you will have a diagnosis of X if you have five of the following nine symptoms, for example. And then... You may look at the person at one point and then a few years down the road, look at their symptom list and it's changed. You know, I, I have a client, for example, who for a number of years had a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder through the astute use of good psychotherapy, um, ended up moving into a sort of a set of behaviors and a way of looking at the world where the, the people diagnosing her said, you know, she no longer has borderline personality disorder. So people can change. These are not permanent diagnoses necessarily. Interesting. Interesting. Um, AD, ADD and ADHD, why is it so prevalent nowadays? What is, what's causing that in your opinion? Or do you have an opinion, <laughs> I should ask? Oh, what's causing it? Um, goodness, that's probably several books in itself. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yes, you know, because, it, uh, I mean, but, you know, every, about, every other parent I talk to has a child that has it. So why is it too prevalent? What is it a product of? I mean, it. I, I think of, you know, young people have what I would say sometimes, you know, learning differences. I think you've heard that phrase before. You know, we were not all meant to sort of sit in, you know, row and column order in a classroom getting instruction. Some people learn differently. Some people are so bright and so curious, you know, they're they're bored. They're looking around. They're not engaging like other students. Um, but, you know, families also too frequently today who are under pressure may not be able to be able to attend to some of the needs of of their children as much as they had in the past. Um, too frequently, you know, what's seen as, quote, misbehavior in the classroom gets labeled as attention deficit disorder. Too frequently, you know, even one read one research uh, 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 article, Randy, where, you know, schools were graded according to, you know, how well their students could perform on uh, tests, and, you know, they would want to get their overall schools, you know, graded at a higher level with students performing at a higher level. 
Well, guess what? In some of these formulas, if you had students that weren't quite uh, doing as well as others and, and they ended up having an ADHD uh, diagnosis, they were taken out of the formula. It's like, what? Now, what kind of motivational you know, system is that? It, um, so there, there are multiple ways of looking at this, but it is so clear in my mind that, you know, if there is an ADHD diagnosis, which I respect as an official, as a real diagnosis, that I would encourage anyone listening to not only think of medications as an approach to take, but look into something called neurofeedback, which is a like a brain training program that can help people increase their capacity for attention, and it does not require medication in all cases. Oh, that's really good to know. Uh, you know, I had um, several years ago, I had a guest on my show. Her name is Dr. Meg Blackburn-Losey. She wrote a book that's called The Children of Now Evolution, and what she talks about in that book is that there's really kind of a new um, variety of children that are out there and that she calls them crystalline children or star kids or whatever and um, that these kids have a, a they're, they're different and that the ADHD is not there's not something wrong with them it's just who they are and as you said and and even autism and um, Asperger's and um, bipolar and things like that in children that we really just need to address children for who they are and what their individual needs are. And I can, you know, I can speak to my own kids. I had one kid who you could put her anywhere and she would succeed, you know, learning. I had another kid who couldn't focus. She's now a doctor. But it was because we had to tweak what he was being exposed to, how he was learning. You know, we had to tweak things in order to get him to that place. So I just really think that the school system is too rigid and it does not address all children. And even with myself, I was a very creative person. I learned through creating. I learned through experiencing. I didn't learn through books and classroom. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I had trouble in that way. And um, I would hope that at some point that the school education system begins to realize that children need to learn, all learn different ways, not just one way. So I think that's yeah. very important to speak about. Yeah, I um, certainly agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. Uh, it, and there's, um, you talk about the mistrust of the mental health system, and um, there were some typical comments that you, you uh, mentioned here. Like, it was a nightmare. We were treated like baggage and like we were stupid. Um my only understanding is that the system fails more than not. Switch to a different therapist for one year, not much improvement. The therapist says, you're okay. Maybe another third parent person will do the trick. Thinking of switching once again. Um, people who have, you know, you talk about people who have had children um, with suicide attempts, and it doesn't seem that anyone is concerned enough to really help them through it. So... If you've had negative experiences such as the ones that I just explained, mm-hmm. what can we do, what do you tell us to change our perspective on the mental health care system and how we can approach it? 
Yeah, the, the comments I think that you made came from some of the research we did listening to families and their experiences. And again, is in part why we wrote this guide for families. Because um, there are so many good people in the mental health field. Um, there are very good therapists um, who are guided by, you know, the best ethics and the best training. And there are, you know, many good psychiatrists. And part of our, you know, work with the Mental Horizons podcast is to shine light on that. So first of all, you know, don't give up as a family. Don't give up as a person who's suffering. Uh, step back refocus on your own internal desire to achieve recovery and as a family member to help recovery occur. Um, And if you have a practitioner who is not believing in recovery, who is not exuding hope, who does not provide compassion along with treatment, then you need to look for another practitioner. Um, and you might interview the practitioners that you're wanting to choose between. Again, a therapeutic consultant can help with that. Um, But also, you know, and I would, you know, on one uh, interview I did with someone, and I'll offer it the same here today, Randy, any listener who is someone who is coping with serious mental illness and would like to get our guidebook for their family, I'm happy to send them a copy for free. Oh, that's so wonderful. If, if you want to give my email address at some point, I'm you happy can to say, give them Why email. don't you say that now? Why don't you say your email address now so people know that they can write okay. to you? Well, it's the name Virgil, B-I-R-G-I-L, Virgil, at, it's Virgil, Stucker, and Associates, that's all spelled out, Virgil, V-I-R-G-I-L, Stucker, like the word stuck with an E-R, and then the word and associates.com. So Virgil at virgilstucker and associates.com. So any listener, and I'm especially in tune with those who are peer support specialists, people who have been achieving recovery and who are trying to help others, um, and I've been giving out the book also for free to some of the listeners who are part of NAMI, uh, the National mm-hmm. Alliance for Mental Illness, as well as uh, Mental Health of America. Okay. So, you know, this is, you know, yes, you know, we do sell the book on Amazon and anyone who wants to find it just, you know, if you put in my name, Virgil Stucker, there aren't a whole lot of them. Uh, the book will <laughs> pop up. And uh, this is, you know, this is our our gift, as it were. I wish, you know, Randy, That's I wish so every family nice. that, you know, had a family member in a hospital could get a copy of this book. Cause as, as we say in our subtitle, it's what you need to know from day one. Yeah, this is not a book that has all the answers, but it helps you know what the question should be and helps you know that you can be an effective team member and how to do that. Yes, and you know what I like about what your your work um, is that you're action oriented. You know, which is really the way I am. I'm not about trying to keep somebody for years and do a little bit here and a little bit there and try to drag it on. I'm about getting somebody to the right mental state 
and helping them mm-hmm. move on with their life. I, I love when I graduate people. I love it, you know. And I, and mm-hmm. it ha- it can happen pretty quickly for those who are focused. Um, but you are also very action oriented. You're about you know just getting right to the meat of it. Let's, this is what you know the best way to to approach this is, and I really like that. Um, I. Uh, I was going to actually ask you this, and I'm looking in the book, and you say if your loved one is not willing to accept care. And I wanted to actually bring that out. But I also wanted to mention about um, a health care proxy and a psychiatric advanced directive. Um, explain what those are and why it's important that we have them for our children or family members. Okay, well, to you, sounds, there are two questions there. First of all, what do you do with a family member who is hard to reach, it doesn't seem like they really want to recover, they may be resisting the awareness that they have a mental health condition. You know, what's crept into the language too frequently are concepts, um, uh, well, there's there's one name for it, but in, in, in short, it's the concept that, oh, this person is so mentally ill that they can't, they, they just can't accept it. You know, part of their mental illness is that they can't accept it. And there's there's more to it than that, Randy. Generally, if you really listen to someone uh, with sort of a recovery orientation in mind, and instead of you know asking them first of all to accept their diagnosis, start with the question, "What is your dream?" Mm. It's like a person might say, "Well, what, what what is my dream?" No one's asked me that for a long time. No, no. What is it you want to do in life? Where is it you want to go? What is it you want to accomplish? It's a question that automatically affirms them as a whole person. And once they start feeling sort of that empathy that you can project with a question like that, then you next ask, well, what's in the way? What's in the way of your dream? And that's when you can hear things that, you know, the mental health system may describe as symptoms, but the person may have other language for it. I remember one father calling me and saying, my son has schizophrenia. He just can't accept that. He can't accept that. You know, what do I do? And I said, well, what does he like to do? What does he want to do? Well, he wants to be an organic gardener. I said, let's start there. So I invited his son to join one of the programs I had started where it had an organic garden, and the son willingly came to work in the garden and along the way was able to talk about his impediments, which he described as voices, and was able to accept care and deal with the symptoms and move much further in life and deal with his mental illness. So you don't always start with the negative. You start with Oh, that's amazing. That is so amazing, Virgil. I really like Uh, that. Okay. And um, and we probably have have about five minutes. We probably have about five minutes left, so I really wanted to... um, so, so the healthcare proxy and the psychiatric advanced directive. Um, mm-hmm. What do these do for us? Okay, well, too frequently, families who you know have a family member that doesn't seem like you know they can really make decisions on their own, they'll call an attorney, and the attorney will say, "Oh, we can do guardianship." I'm not saying that guardianship is always a bad thing, but if you think about going through that, you have to go through the court system. It can be humiliating for your family member. It's cumbersome, it's very expensive to get that. Instead of that, sometimes it can be much more effective if your family member is willing to sign a durable health care proxy. Now, that 
especially if it's in the form of a psychiatric advance directive, gives your family member the ability to put into that directive sort of the formula of what works for them, gives them a sense of control, but it also assigns someone to be able to make decisions for them when they're unable to do so. So the psychiatric advance directive, at least having a healthcare proxy combined with a durable power of attorney, which can sometimes give you 30 days of durability before the person would rescind it, it's so much easier to execute these documents. The court system is not required. You probably need your attorney to help draft them. But the person signs it, it's witnessed, it is notarized, and it's in place. Much more effective sometimes than guardianship. And another thing is the is a medical power of attorney. And I know my children are grown, but we have it. We, we've had a medical power of attorney um, legally drawn up for our children should mm-hmm. they end up in a hospital so that we can make decisions and we can um, get information. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a good thing too, so that you can be involved, uh, and right. people will share medical information with you. Because, I mean, can you imagine you have you know you have an adult child who goes to the hospital and they and they're out of it and they won't tell you anything and you know you're just lost. So I think that's really um, an important the, that and the healthcare proxy, the psychiatric advance directive are very uh, very yeah, important. It, yeah, it can open up the communication, and then also what's important to point out is HIPAA, the laws that can sometimes you know be used by that adult child in the hospital to bar communication, is only barring communication one way. The healthcare practitioner can't tell the family what's going on. However, the healthcare practitioner can listen to the family. The family often has a wealth of information that can be helpful. So the family should know that HIPAA does not bar them from communicating to the healthcare practitioners. Okay. Thank you for for um mentioning that. I think that's important for us to know. So Virgil, um so we talked about your book, A Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery, what you need to know from day one. And you did mention your email. Um did you mention your website? I'm not sure if we got to that. Yeah. No, the- yeah, the website is Virgil Stucker and Associates dot com. Okay. And Virgil V I R G I L Stucker like stuck with an E R and then and Associates dot com. Okay. And um so you wrote this book with the hopes of reaching as many families as possible to let them know that um that they're not alone and that there is Guidance. There is a way to go through this. Um, so, what do you offer people in your practice? And um, I, I don't know if you have associates that work with you, but what is it that you w- would help a person do if they came to you? Uh, I generally work at two levels. One is generally when I'm approached by family, there's sort of a sense of crisis and chaos. I try to work with them to understand what's going on, especially want to know from the clinicians also what their understanding is. And once I can understand what the situation is, and I always try to talk with the person who's in need as well, uh, I help them know that they can move from point A to point B, and often there are two or three options that they can select to point B, and I help facilitate that transition. 
because uh, you know, as a navigator of you know sort of the the sense of cross sort of crisis and chaos that exists, so we try and help them navigate calmly through that. And sometimes I am also involved with families over a longer term just to do some of the longer term planning. I'm not an attorney, but I can sometimes help them and their attorneys with some of the devices that we talked about, the psychiatric advance directive and sometimes trust systems and so on. And yes, I do have associates because the demand for our therapeutic consulting is far more than I can provide individually. So on my website, you'll see that I have five associates uh, that I turn to, people that I really respect who also help families. And there's this therapeuticconsulting.org. It's a therapeutic consulting association, about 60 people nationwide that do this kind of consulting as well. Uh, Very high ethical standards, very good group. I am so happy that um, that you and your book came across my desk because I think this is invaluable information. And in, you know, I've done over 500 shows. I don't think this topic has ever come up, which amazes me. It amazes me. This is, this is actually something that I was completely unaware of. So, and I love to bring this kind of information to my listeners uh, because... As, again, if I if I didn't hear of it, they probably haven't either. So um, thank you so much for the work that you do. Is there a message that you want to leave us with at the end? We're coming down to the last couple of minutes. Well, uh, Randy, I first of all, I thank you so much for this invitation to have a conversation with you. It's an honor to, to have this dialogue. The message, I, I think it's really a message of, of recovery, I have worked with some of the most profoundly individuals with serious mental illness, with some families in the greatest levels of distress. And I've seen families and individuals weave their way out of that chaos into a place of recovery, into full lives. I've worked with thousands of families over the years. So never, never give up hope, but also be patient. Recovery is possible. That doesn't mean cure. That means recovery. We all have some kind of deficit in our lives, but we can, all of us, move toward our highest levels of functioning and fulfillment. Excellent, excellent message. I like that. I really do. Um, Great way to end things. So uh, I am really appreciative of you being my guest today. And as I said, um, just love the topic, love what you're doing, Really, val- really value your work. So, um, I know you're going to keep doing it because you're you're in this for the right reasons. So, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the help that you give, and thank you most of all for sharing this information with me and my get my um, listeners today. Appreciate it. Well, you are most welcome. I thank you for the invitation. Have a good okay. day. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.